This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. And I am Chris Kreitcho. And Stephen, last time I actually did fail to say my name. I know. We both just imagined it. And then you were like, wait, I didn't do that. And I was like, no, I totally imagined that. That's totally a thing that I did. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And I was I wondering have if you were going to forget to say your name. An active imagination, but do remember to say my name. Today, we're going to talk about friction, which is related to many aspects of our life, not just technology, but technology has had a hand in making uh, many things have less friction. Right. Why would you want friction, you say? And if you're a mechanical engineer, you're like, die friction. And I get you. <laughs> I get you. But that's not the type of friction we're looking for. Or is it? We're looking... Well... I mean, we could be advocating for machines to die earlier. That is a thing we could be advocating for by the will, end of this episode. I will elaborate by soon. <laughs> I, we, I, I'm, I'm granting that this is a place we could end up at the end of the podcast. So maybe mechanical friction is even involved in this podcast. But at the very basic level that we originally were going to talk about is this idea that friction is little problems, difficulties, barriers, hurdles, bits of stuff that make a task more difficult. Right. And prima facie, you're like, well, I would like to make all things a little bit easier. That seems like (laughs) the advance of progress. And you would not be wrong. But at this particular point in history, people are starting to think, hey, maybe we've made everything too easy. Maybe we've made hating people on the internet far too easy. (laughs) Maybe we should make some things harder again. (laughs) And that's where we join this conversation. So this is one of the few conversations on Winning Slowly where we're talking about things that other people are actually talking about at the same time. It's weird. And we're not a year behind. It's weird. My notes were a year ahead, but we didn't get there back in December because reasons. That's true. Yeah, because reasons. And (laughs) it's where we've come from the beginning of the podcast to now, and the rest of the world has just caught up with us. Hooray! Hooray! So friction. I alluded to this last week, and then we kept on our bigger questions around scale. But friction is, as Stephen said, a thing that makes you go slower. And we can talk about friction in the physical sense. I spent a lot of time thinking about friction when I was doing my undergraduate work in physics because friction is a really important thing, especially in your first year physics class when you're talking about blocks sliding down inclined slopes and all of these other fun things. Infinite slopes. <laughs> and and infinite slopes with zero friction. What happens if you take away friction and wait, all of wait, these wait. things? Infinite slopes with zero friction. Assume a spherical cow. All of my physics <laughs> listeners will understand what I just meant. No one else will. And then the spherical cow says, Mew, because it's a physics department and (laughs) nerds, extreme nerdery. Okay. But friction is something that makes you go slower in general. If you have an infinite slope with no friction, you just go down it faster and faster and faster and faster as affected by gravity. And this is also known as Twitter. And gravity here is human sin. Humans. <laughs> right. So when you add friction to that infinite plane, it makes the block that's sliding down it called your 
ethics and morality and all your internal restraint actually go and be engaged in the in the physics example that block sliding down a plane can be slowed sometimes it'll come to in in any case if you have real friction it'll come to a point of equilibrium in the speed at which it's traveling that point of equilibrium is sometimes zero it will just stop no matter how hard you push it if there's enough friction we've all experienced this in our daily lives if you have ever tried to push a box across a floor say when you're moving and the box is very full and has hard things on the bottom well you just stop or imagine instead of your bicycle having nice tires full of air that it were made of cinder blocks they would not roll very well even if they were round cinder blocks because friction this is a good helpful picture of friction in the world because Friction also exists at a more metaphorical level than all of those very literal, <laughs> if somewhat, in some cases, hypothetical level we were just talking about. Right. Is there, uh, in, in the, the, the metaphorical sense, is there ever a point, would there ever be an object heavy enough that it continued to slide with friction until there was no more object and friction <laughs> had just run away the entire thing? Human sin. Yep. Well, <laughs> well, that's that's the point I'm getting here, is that if there was a possibility of, like, the morals to be continually degraded to the point where there was nothing left except noise, <laughs> that's what Twitter would be like if we didn't make any changes in, like, Correct. five Soon. years. Right. Soon. Soon. But the notion of friction in this more metaphorical sense is how easy is it to accomplish a task? And you can experience this in all sorts of technologies, not limited to internet social technologies, which are what tend to get lumped under the word technology these days. But of course, as we've often pointed out, the water bottle sitting on my desk is a technology. I had a conversation with colleagues earlier where they said, how would you grab water when someone said they were going to go grab some liquid? And I just held up my water bottle and they said, oh, that's with, with a water bottle. Yes, that, that. That's a technology. It's a tool. It's a thing. Yeah. And all technologies make certain things easier. For example, water bottles make carrying water. water around and drinking it much easier. Otherwise, I would have to go to the lake behind my house and siphon some water out of it and then probably purify it so that I didn't die. And this would be a much more complicated process. Yes. Which, it should be noted, some people still have to do. So True that. There are many technologies involved in my getting water. Things like entire systems of water for purification and pipes that run to my house and so on. And this shows up in how we get our food. I was reading a couple articles, which I will link in the show notes, about variously new kinds of apples being produced and fake meat and a, a number of things in this space, those two being the biggest. And both of these were getting at a reduction in the friction that people experience in getting food and how that affects the market. But also then there are these really interesting implications that came to mind for me in reading these of people's actual experience of food and what we think about when it comes to food. We don't think about the fact that strawberries are seasonal fruit because you can get them in your grocery store all year long. They're really bad in the other six they, months, though. They are. But even those six months they're where basically they're basically cardboard, the good ones, those are different varieties of strawberries all being packaged up as though they're the same strawberries because True. we just want to reduce the mental friction of consumers having to make choices. And then, of course, in the kinds of technology which are most 
au courant, or however you say that French phrase. It's my best imitation Ooh. for the day. If my old Ooh friend la Kelsey's la. listening to this, she is sobbing now because, well, she actually knows French. <sighs> Point being, in these kinds of very current technological considerations, it has been a given that friction is bad. We want it to be as easy as possible for the user to do the thing for which they came to the site, whether that is posting a tweet or sharing a photo on Instagram or sharing an update with friends and family on Facebook or trying to find a job on LinkedIn or any of these things. And in many ways, the aim there is good, reducing the friction, making it easy for people to use your thing, making your technology so that it doesn't punch you in the face every time you try to use it. We've all used those websites where you can't do anything, where you're trying to, say, get through an application for the local DMV online, and good luck. May the Lord have mercy on your soul. <laughs> Arizona's DMV. If anyone from the Arizona DMV is listening, y'all's website is awesome. <laughs> Don't sweat it. It's not. He's not talking about you. Because they eliminated all of these needless, horrible frictions along the way where you have to fill out a PDF in an online PDF interface that forgets everything yeah. you did every 10 seconds, etc. Yeah. So there you are kinds of friction which are horrible, nightmarish, awful, perverse. I could elaborate adjectives. <laughs> Trust me, I could continue. Stephen knows. I do. But he hates the DMV that much. <laughs> the flip side of all of this is that if you make it too easy, if you eliminate all the friction to do certain kinds of things, you can encourage all sorts of bad behaviors. You can create patterns which induce addiction. So, a prime example in the tech world that is a quote-unquote dark pattern in the UI sense of its user hostile in a real sense is games, which make it super, super easy for you to spend, and I'm not exaggerating here, thousands and thousands of dollars on in-app purchases to unlock cool things to do the next level in the game and so on. Eliminating friction there is, turns out, bad for people because maybe the person in question is a seven-year-old who doesn't understand that they are costing their parents $10,000 in in-app purchases. We might have That's a conversation a about what the parent should or shouldn't be doing with their phones and purchasing and all of that. But the net of it is that the technology itself is creating a too frictionless thing because that benefits the purveyor of that technology, whether that's a game, whether that's YouTube by decreasing the friction for you to keep watching by just auto-playing the next video, whether that's Twitter by making it trivial for you to retweet and cause swarms of followers to go attack or give great hullabaloos to whatever it is that you're retweeting. All of those kinds of friction have these consequences of not just making it easier for users to do some arguably good things, but also making it enormously easier for users to do things that aren't good necessarily for the user or for society or possibly even in the long run for you, the company. Okay, so here's where I have a bit of a nuanced stance here. In, in that, one of the reasons that this whole idea exists, that the technologies are doing things that are bad towards people. Partially that's true. You can 
encode like malevolent things. But one of the reasons this is happening is because, A, there are no ethics truly encoded into technologies. Insofar as they could be, they are not. Right. And B, we don't have a public ethical stance or even public ethical ethicists (laughs) who are saying Do we have public unethical ethicists? uh, I'm I'm not going to slander anybody, (laughs) but... I, that should tell you my answer, but um, but there's there's a a void, and this is, should not be a surprise to anyone who's listened to the show for any amount of time, much less years, is that there's a void where people don't know how to use technologies. People don't have moral frameworks in which they use technologies. Right. So the where the the friction becomes a problem is that there's nothing empirically wrong in a totally ethically void space, like in an infinite slope, <laughs> I guess, an infinite vacuum. There's nothing wrong about making it easy to spend money. There's, there's in a void. Right. But problem being, we don't live in a void. <laughs> we don't live in a void. The problem is that people often when we're talking about situations like this, and I'm actually writing an academic journal article about this very topic, so I'm, this is a thing I've been thinking about a lot, people are incentivized in different ways. They prioritize different things in their life, and their priorities are not always what X, Y, or Z wants. So right. the priorities that a person has are not always the same ones that an employer has. The priorities that a person has are not always the same ones that their friends or family or parents have. And so there's this complicated dance where, on the one hand, algorithmically, quantitatively, at an average, understanding that people are going to be more likely to buy something if we do X is as morally valid or invalid as the person looking at it thinks. So, right, if a person looks at it and says, oh, my gosh, I'm going to spend all this money now because it's easier to do so, which, if you've ever played one of those games, is partially how you think. Mm -hmm. It is now easier to do this. Mm -hmm. I just have to press the button. If you have a moral set that says, I don't care about what happens right now. I'll deal with the consequences in the future. (laughs) Then you're in a situation where the game has led you to do something wrong. Mm Mm-hmm because of what your internalized moral set is. Right. And if you're in a situation where you're like, wow, that seems like a thing maybe I'll do on a weekend once when I'm sick and I don't have anything better to do, or maybe I won't ever do that at all because I think that would lead to addiction and that would be bad, the game hasn't done anything except like make your checkout experience for that one time better. And so there's a complicated set here where, one, are we saying that technology companies should decide where the the bad aspects of people on average are going to go awry and defend against those. Yep. That's a that's a significant ethical statement. Right. And if the answer is yes, then you go on this tree and if the answer is no, then you end up where the conversation is right now. It's right. mired in how do we make decisions? Right. Because the audience is so large that if we go to try to stop the worst case scenario from happening, we're going to 
stop in some cases entirely. If you go far enough to stop the worst case from happening, you're going to stop good things from happening. Right. And so this goes back to the conversation we had over the past few episodes about when we get to a point where we say, as a group, ethically, we now are allowing goods to not happen so that we can defend against these bads, then we can start talking about friction again. Because as soon as you want to put friction back in, you're not just saying, let's make it harder to do X. You're saying, categorically, we think that X is bad enough, maybe mm -hmm. not for you, maybe not for me, but for the aggregate, that we're just going to avoid this. Right. And I think the thing that is essential in this conversation and the thing that I want to become more a part of this conversation is the recognition that our environment, including our technologies, as we've been saying for years and years and years, do shape us. They create incentives for us. And so to take an example that's been very current lately because a former Twitter engineer had a big, long piece in Wired, which we'll, of course, link in the show notes, about the retweet button and right. the impact that has had. The creation of the retweet button, I remember when it happened, and I remember thinking, oh, this is nice. This makes this easier when it happened. It was a removal of friction because people were retweeting for years. You would write RT for retweet because you only had 140 characters, so you better use them well. And the name of the person you were retweeting, and then as much of their post as you could squeeze in after doing that, the act of decreasing friction there made it possible. And the later insertion of quote tweets, where you would not only just retweet the tweet, but you could effectively retweet it with commentary in line without cost to your own character count. These two things both made it much easier to interact with someone else's take on Twitter in a way that made that interaction much more visible and made the original thing you were interacting with much more visible to whoever followed you on Twitter. And it did this in a way that, at first blush, is just user serving. It makes things easier for users. It looks and says what many good UI and UX designers really do work hard at doing, and that in is, as I said at the outset, in a general kind of category, it is a good thing to do. It is a way to serve your users, to look, right. oh, this is where they have beaten down the grass and actually walked. Why don't we just make the path go through there? A lot of the best right. decisions in technology design entail looking and saying, oh, these students never actually walk on the sidewalk. They walk on the grass over here. We're just going to put a sidewalk there and stop trying to make that a flower bed because it's never going to work. Right, right. That's essentially what happened with the retweet button. Right. People were already doing it. They just encoded it. And right. because there was no sort of forward-thinking moral engagement with what this might do, even if it would have been hard to predict certain types of bads, you could have overall projected the high-level bads that this could have uh, enabled. If you don't have a moral framework in front of your company at all times, in front of your designers at all times, there's not going to be a way for them to sit down and be like, this is something that people do, and if we do this, we might make it so that people could yell at each other more without having to interact with each other. Do we want to be that sort of company? Right. 
Do we want to let people do that but make it hard for them to do that and then just like suffer the consequences of that? Right. Uh, or do we want to like make it easier because people already do this and just give them fan service? <laughs> right. I, I think it's really difficult if you don't have an underlying moral frame to say, oh, yeah, like we just give them what they want. They're already doing it. Like it was make it easier. Right. And so this is, again, not an indictment specifically of the companies and their lack of morals, but also of the way that people who are retweeting retweet. Mm-hmm. Because if they were retweeting each other in totally positive ways all the time, then, like, this would be a problem. (laughs) Like, this is about how you, as a moral agent, with your morals, be they Christian or or utilitarian or other, and the morals of the technology work together without friction to be very bad. Right. And so one of the things people are trying to do is say, like, well, let's just put some friction back into the the tech side of things and, like, take out some of the easiness with which people do this. Right. I have a hard time believing that you can put the genie back in the bottle just from a technical standpoint. Right. right. You don't get to undo this just by taking away the retweet button. <laughs> yeah. I think that you've already caused some fusion of people's internal moral calculus plus the retweet button to do something that perhaps they wouldn't have done when they just had the frictiony bits of right. retweeting someone manually. And now, even if they took away the, the retweet button, people would still revert to doing those frictiony bits and yelling in the same way they used to because they have whatever benefits they get out of that are still going to be there. Right. Because the culture has changed in response to this decrease of friction in the technology. Right. And it's possible that some of the shifts in culture would have happened anyway. If one looks at the trajectory of how Twitter got to where it is today, for example. And I'm using Twitter here mostly because Twitter is well known for having wide swaths of it that are just full of people foaming at the mouths with anger for each other. And because the examples here are very concrete and easy to talk about, but many of these things apply to most major tech companies and not just in the social space. So yeah, I'm going to zoom out later in this. Yeah, we're going to generalize, but I want to use this example and kind of finish teasing it out because I think it's helpful to see how the trajectories are intertwined of the culture and the technology. So Twitter made that change, introduced that feature and For the first bit after they did, things mostly kept being as they were. And then an external cultural event that did not actually start on Twitter changed the culture of the internet, the whole internet, very substantially. Gamergate was a thing, and you can go read good histories, good relatively objective histories of this if you go poke around, but the way that people shifted in how they used Twitter specifically, online media in general, there was a real change in 2014. I remember watching and feeling the change then, and it was kind of strange and surreal to see an entire community kind of twist. And I use the word twist because there was a twisting from the goods that had been present into a much more distorted and much more of the negatives that were happening. And it's not that the negatives well, and, didn't exist before. And this is a particularly prescient example because mm-hmm. the 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 framing of what Gamergate was was part of the controversy. Mm-hmm. Because exactly there was that. one side that said 
it's about ethics and journalism. And the other side is was about you're just trolls who are violent misogynists. Right. And mathematically speaking, uh, on the number of words uh, spilled about <laughs> ethics and journalism and the ones about uh, violent misogyny, uh, mathematically speaking, it was more about misogyny. Right. There's, there's a sense here that even when you have these technologies, there are people that have ethics right. that are pointing them in bad directions. So even if you do have a technology ethics, and even if there, there hadn't been the retweet button, people with bad ethics, people that don't mind doxing people or right. making violent death threats or these sorts of things, people who have those sorts of moral and ethical frameworks, like they're just going to keep on doing those things. Like There's no amount of friction that's going to stop that sort of action from happening in its entirety. Now, the goal is hopefully that if you make it harder to do, then people won't want to do it as often. Right. And you would have to be much more committed to doing this right. to actually do it. And so right. that's where the barriers come from in the very beginning of this conversation is that the whole idea of reinstituting friction is to make the easy aspects of badness more difficult. Right. But by no means does it is it a way that we stop badness from happening. No. What it does in principle and what as we alluded to last week, when we think about how we don't do this next time. One of the things that we have to do is have a non-Pollyannish assumption, to use a phrase from Ben Thompson, about how people are and how they'll behave under certain kinds of incentives, and then recognize that keeping certain frictions in place is essential to the health of these kinds of things. And that can be frictions in terms of how large communities can get. It can be frictions in terms of how easy certain kinds of discovery can be. I really appreciate Manton Reese's microblog project because he's very, very careful about saying there are some good things in the microblogging world. But one of the worst things is the function of scale. So we're going to keep discovery much more curated. And yeah, that means it doesn't quote unquote scale the same way, but it also means that you never have the situation where something can become a trending hashtag when that something is horrible, horrible misogyny or horrible racism or whatever else, because there's a person curating it with an ethical vision. And okay, those I was about kinds to say, with of... an ethical vision, because you can yes. get things you can oh, yes. get things to trend if you have bad moderators. Like that's <laughs> Correct. not a problem. But that's the thing. It's all of these together. It's not that friction and this is in many ways the thesis of this episode. Friction is not sufficient. But friction is in fact necessary. Because you can yes. have the best ethics in the world, and if you just remove all the friction, then that infinite slope of human sin is just going to keep people right. are broken. And right. so that's kind of the thesis here. Not even kind of. That is the thesis here. That's that the thesis. friction, which is happily coming back into the conversation, is a good and necessary part of good UI design in lots of spaces, in checkout flows, in Twitter, in how you build a handle. Turns out if you had a frictionless handle, it would fly out of your hand and you couldn't <laughs> hammer things. Friction is actually good. This is what I was getting at about mechanical engineers earlier. Mechanical engineers <laughs> want the right amount of friction so that things don't fly apart, but not that's so true. much friction that they wear down. And that's actually a really, really hard problem to solve. That's right. It's less ethically fraught in the case of a hammer. Right. But... 
friction is good in that sense, but it's insufficient for right. this. And so, and, and so that's where my point is, is that I like the idea of friction as an intervention, mm-hmm. like we talked with Ari Wallach. That's, that's an important thing to do. But I fear that people are going to latch on to friction, make things yep. hard to use on the internet, and so then be like, we did it! <laughs> and be like, oh, great. Like Now things are hard to use on the internet for people that don't want to do violent misogyny. And we didn't solve the problem it was trying to solve in the first place. <laughs> right. And because so you didn't I'm... have a frame for what the re- friction was actually trying to do and, more importantly, why. And, yeah, and a frame for, for what friction can and can't do and, right. and why that that is a positive thing. And so I think that beyond just friction, what I'm hoping is that people quickly realize that friction is difficult to achieve uh, – both ad hoc like let's just add Mm -hmm. some friction in and it's it's hard to achieve in a void like yeah friction is good de facto it is good because it's good um (laughs) and and that i see is one of the ways that tech companies are trying to defend themselves is that anytime somebody suggests anything they're like yeah that's good let's do that one like we're gonna do that and then you will not be mad at us anymore and i think this is part of the problem that we're gonna have over the next five to ten years is that tech companies are just gonna like start whack-a-moling with every concept that comes up to them now in the long term if you whack a mole enough concepts and companies just begrudgingly <laughs> whack themselves into like ethical boxes, like this is sort of okay um, as an in- uh, intervention, even if it's not holistically framed. So continue on with whacking a mole, but um, <laughs> that is not what I the episode. <laughs> that's well. <laughs> apologies to all moles everywhere, I suppose, um, but. Uh, I think the, the 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 thing I hope for from the tech ethics side, the people who are coming out of tech and being disillusioned and realizing mm-hmm. this was not such a great idea, like the Center for Humane Technology, whose podcast, uh, Your Undivided Attention, is becoming a better and better podcast with each episode. So check into the latest one. Uh, it's, don't listen to the first one, though. <laughs> Don't to listen be fair, to our that's first also what we would either. say about our whole first season. <laughs> don't so don't yeah. listen to our whole first season. So yeah, there you go. Um, but anyway, they they're interested in in how can we make changes, and they started at interventions. I think they're like on episode six or seven now. They started at interventions, and with each episode, as they realized, like, oh, this is getting more and more complex, they start moving further and further into hmm. what is going to end up being an ethical system because you can't just say, well, let's let's just do an intervention, let's do an intervention, let's do an intervention. Um, one, it gets boring, and two, you don't get anywhere. <laughs> and it's a podcast. They want to stay interested. And it's their job, but that's a different story. So um, the point is that I'm hoping that as people go through this phase and like maybe we'll have two or three more cycles of whack-a-moling yeah. that people will say, okay, can we just stop whacking and like, can we just like have a talk about like what you ultimately want to do? Like, what is your ultimate goal? And there are people that are saying this already, right. but it's not reached critical mass yet by right. any means. And so at that point, we can then have big ethical discussions. And I think honestly that the 
path that we're on with people being concerned and suggesting interventions and tech companies being like, oh, what do we do? And people wanting that to happen. I think we're on a path that could reasonably, not in all 100 out of 100 cases, but (laughs) reasonably end up in an ethical discussion about like what is the internet and what do we want to do with it? Right. Which I'm, there are a couple people who made the internet who have some thoughts on this <laughs> incidentally, but that's why I think friction is good and valuable, but until it's totally paired with a reason and that reason doesn't just come from inside tech companies or from, from people, but that they actually have some sort of, discussion maybe over a document or a post or i don't know what it is but there has to be some mediating object that has some life to it that people say okay let's discuss this notably we were really excited about one of those in ai a couple episodes back Mm -hmm. like this is how it works right and i'm hopeful that not I, I I like friction and I hope it works insofar as it can go, but I'm more hopeful that it doesn't ultimately work and <laughs> that people are like, whoa, this isn't working, just solving the symptoms. Maybe we right. should go to the cause. So I'm kind of okay with friction, but I hope that the frictioneers fail. I think I hope that the frictioneers get pushed into... I, I hope they fail enough to get pushed into the spot where friction can actually work. I want them to stop being frictioneers Interesting. and Interesting. become ethical designers and engineers. I think that's I like. think that's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah. So ultimately the the goal is not just sets of interventions absent a moral framework, nor is it just a moral framework. But right. it's it's them paired together, and that's a lot of what we've been talking about this season is this isn't enough, but if you do it with X or if you do it with Y, then you start to get somewhere. You start to have reasons for doing things other right. than just making money, scaling, Engagement. whatever it is. Engagement, yeah, all of that. We didn't even mention YouTube, and that's probably good because it would have taken like 10 minutes of me ranting before we got anywhere, but... <laughs> I did technically mention it, so gladly it just slipped past your radar, apparently. Yeah, well, you were in the middle of something, so I didn't, didn't <laughs> I do think I that. may win longest monologue, so, you know. There you go. There you go. The music at the beginning of the episode was uh, Stig of the Dump slash Oglet Live by <laughs> El Topo. I love that, that title. So That's good. pretty much the... I think it's the best title of songs that we've ever had on <laughs> on this show. It's at least the most fun to say. True story. Hopefully it doesn't mean anything bad. I don't know what it means. <laughs> and it's an and it's an instrumental track, so like it's not like there's lyrics to tell me what it means. Listeners don't tell me what it means. <laughs> we used it by permission. We used it by permission. We did. <laughs> don't use it without permission. I was just suddenly worrying about what it means. What it means. What does it all mean? (laughs) Thanks, as always, to everyone who sponsors the show, including Nathaniel Blaney. You can sponsor the show yourself at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. We recently used some of that money to buy a book, which we're going to read and then interview the author of. That's right. Get excited. Thank you for sponsoring us. We, We do appreciate it. 
We definitely do. If you want to reach out to us, you can do so at Facebook or on Twitter at Winning Slowly. Or you can email us. And as I mentioned before, don't tell us what the song name means, if it means anything. (laughs) But other than that, we're very interested in your thoughts. The email address, because Stephen got distracted by the song title again, was hello hello. at winningslowly.org. That's right. That's right. As always, thanks for listening. listening. With where we've come. There you go. Gosh. (laughs) This is what sleep deprivation will do to you, kids. What it does is recognize the ways that humans are broken. It takes a non... What's the word? Utilitarian? No. (laughs) Deterministic? Um, kind of totally unlike those it's like idealistic but um platonistic what's the word thompson uses pollyanna-ish yes yes pollyanna-ish i'm going to say it like that (laughs) that can go in like sean connery (laughs) sean connery is here for you